Welcome. I'm Rami Khouri, journalist in residence at the American University of Beirut, and I'm glad to have you with us for this episode of Professors at Work, a weekly program where we interview professors and scholars at the American University of Beirut, and we ask them about their research, what they're exploring, why it matters, what they're discovering, and how it might make the world better. We're delighted to have as our guest this week, Dr. Nasser Yassin, Associate Professor at the Faculty of Health Sciences, who has also been for some years at the Hassan Faris Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs here at AUB. And uh, he has also been interim director at IFI for the last year. Dr. Yassin, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Rami. Good to be with you. Thanks. So uh, your work has covered many fields, and I think the one we'd like to explore is the work on civil society and civil society actors and how they do or do not influence policymaking. Could you tell us about what is the focus of this work, and then we'll get into other dimensions of it. This research um, started uh, after the Arab uprisings. And the assumption we had that uh, policymaking for many, many years uh, in the Arab world um, has been less open, less participatory, less deliberative in the way of allowing you know, different actors, uh, different segments of society to be part of the policymaking process. And you know, based on a lot of theories, deliberative policymaking is key to engage with people you are actually trying to design programs or policies to support them, to serve them, whether it's around health policy, education, women empowerment, even basic services, and so on and so forth. You're talking about engaging with the beneficiaries or the act people active in society? So we looked into the different actors in civil society. Uh, a very you know, open definition here of civil society, including those who are from grassroots. For example, we looked into some case studies of tribal women in Morocco who wanted to have more say in the tribal land that they're working in. They wanted those land that are tribal in the nature, they're run by the tribe, they're not necessarily owned by someone and they're not owned by the state, but they want to have some uh, inheritance, they want to use mm. this land and not only be limited to men in the tribe or in the family. So they created a grassroots group from those women, they called the Sulaliyat, from the tribe they come from, and they started advocating for change in the current practice in terms of access to land and using it and so on and so forth. So actually they were at the forefront of fighting for their right of land and land use before any other civil society organization that's more structured and more organized. So mm -hmm. others followed. So this is an example of one of the category or groups we looked at in one Arab country, but also we looked at the more structured, organized civil society organizations or NGOs that actually work in advocacy in a very planned and professional and uh, organized way. And some of these cases we looked at, including the way that those organizations wanted to change or amend policies around domestic violence in Lebanon and Jordan and other places. And we looked into the success factors and what make them successful and so on. So a spectrum of civil society actors from the grassroots, like the case of Morocco, to the very more organized, funded, 
professional civil society organizations like CAFA in Lebanon and like other organizations, and in between a huge spectrum of different forms of civil society actors. And you looked at different sectors of society and different countries at the same time? We looked at 10 Arab countries so far, and we mapped 100 case studies. So we wow. looked into actual policies that civil society groups and actors were attempting to change or influence. So this is how we started. We looked into the actual policy. What was this policy about? In the policy literature or theory, we call it policy subsystem. Mm -hmm. It could be water related, it could be woman empowerment, it could be land use, it could be health, it could be environment and so on and so forth. It could be even digital rights. Mm -hmm. And we walked back in understanding how those civil society groups in their different formation, in their different shapes, tried to influence policy and what were the factors that made them successful or what were the factors that made them less successful or even mm. failing. And we mapped 100 case studies, 10 in each country and 10 in per country, ranging from Morocco to Kuwait. Mm. We took 10 Arab countries from across all the uh, Arab region and of course most of them were not successful. So we went deeper in understanding why there are factors that hinder the role of civil society and the activism and the quest of civil society to influence those policies. And we looked into different ways, including states pushing back, including the type of governance in certain countries, including traditional uh, authorities mm -hmm. and the way they push back on certain policies, right. particularly on women or inheritance and so on. And this is where we are. Uh, we're publishing these in different uh, you know, duration and different formats, and they will come in books and, and different uh, publications. And did you find cases that were, were successful, and the reasons for success and the reasons for not being successful? Yeah. What we also did for uh, those cases, we applied uh, policy science uh, theories. Mm. So we looked into some theories from the Western world, mostly, many of those theories try to explain policy making in the US. Mm. And we thought, let's adapt them and see if they can be uh, useful for a context where policy making is different from right. the way it happens in, in the US or in DC or in other more developed democracies. And some of these were useful, some were not. We did this like thought experiment around those policies. Mm -hmm. And we managed through this mapping, as well as going deep and applying theoretical understanding or explanation of these processes to influence policies and actually highlighting some of the success factors. Mm -hmm. And one of the successful theories or successful ways of getting to influence policy making is actually the stamina that civil society groups need to keep and they need to be aware that changing policies all over the world, not only in the Arab world and in less developed democracies takes time. So actually, you need to maintain some kind of stamina where any policy may take between 8 to 10 to 12 years. And this is what we discovered. It takes a lot of wow. time. And secondly, you need to keep advocating for your change, advocating for what you care about as civil society, until there's some kind of window of opportunity, mm -hmm. what we call a policy window. Right. And this policy window may happen because of political reasons, policy related, the problem itself becomes so visible for the public and that the policymakers cannot hide and they cannot not tackle. And this window, when it opens, this is a chance to get their 
amendments or whatever they want to change in this policy into the policymakers' table. So did you find a, a kind of golden key where, for some reason, at some point, policymakers actually go along with making changes, making reforms or making new policies? What makes them change in the end? There is no golden key. I mean, each country and each case is different from the other. Okay. And we, I mean, there's no like, uh, you do this formula and, and it, it works. But actually some of the lessons that we've been synthesizing and learning from all of these cases, which is a fantastic body of knowledge on the Arab world, is to keep hammering the policymakers, right. keep the stamina, work with the media. The media is, is quite influential, mm -hmm. although it might be contained in certain regimes, by certain regimes in the Arab right. world, but work with independent media, work with the media. And when, when the media makes this visible, it means you're actually changing public opinion in the way to influence policymakers to take this on board. Work on the problem itself in terms of understanding it, what you're trying to resolve and why actually you need to resolve it, what it would add for everyone. And there's some role for collaboration with others. So build a critical mass around your cause. This is not the cause of one NGO or one civil society group, actually build an advocacy group or network or, you know, bring others with you. And this is where you start even hammering further the policymakers to take this on board. Wow. So in the context of the last 10 years from 2010 till 2020 now, we've seen mass uprisings all across the Arab, many Arab countries. Four or five are still going in Sudan, Algeria, Lebanon, Iraq, other places. And the people in the streets have gotten fed up, desperate, and they're basically saying, the whole system's got to go. We don't believe reform can happen. All of you have to get out of the way and let new, more competent people take over. Is this sentiment something that affirms or somehow contradicts the findings that you're finding, that maybe at some point the masses of society are not willing to wait and keep pushing? They just give up because their condition has become so bad? Absolutely. Uh we're still doing this research project. It's multi-year, multi-country. And uh, so we created a community of scholars and practitioners who come to AUB four or five times a year over wow. the last three years. So there is a, a community of scholars and practitioners, around 40 of them or less, who come regularly or engage regularly. And in the discussions, someone was saying, are you actually predicting the second wave of the Arab uprising? Yeah. Because all the discussions were on uh, the pushback or the resistance of the regimes, of the states, of governments, to resistance to change, resistance to the reforms and to what civil society in its wider sense right. is asking for. They push back either through bringing in the military in some places, to militarize some of the sectors, mm -hmm. they push back through the traditional, you know, narrative around certain issues that this is not time for it. We cannot engage with women issues. We cannot engage around inheritance. We cannot engage around many of the sectors that are related to what civil society actors are trying to push. Or they would actually use some economic explanation that we don't have resources and so on. All of these are excuses to right. push back on the quest of civil society to change or to change policies. So yes, at some point, we were kind of predicting that you need to dismantle some of these structures in those countries in order to 
push for real change mm-hmm. and real reform and rather than just go around the piecemeal or uh, small changes here and there and sometimes they're done to just to please the public and to please the citizens that we're doing some change so dismantling structures of regimes and of governments was brought up and again so your mm-hmm. point is absolutely you know mm-hmm. uh, correct about those uprisings that we see them now the second wave come actually from the frustration that the masses have around change and real reform and genuine reform from those regimes. One of the things that I've discovered in research I've been doing for the last year, looking at Algeria, Sudan, Lebanon, and Iraq, and the uprisings and their demands and what's changing and what's not changing. One of the surprising things I found, maybe it's not so surprising, is that the demands are almost identical. Hmm. in the, these four countries. And if you went to others like Jordan or Mauritania or other countries, you'd probably find something similar. It, did you find that there was almost the same sentiment across the Arab countries that you studied, or there were some significant particularities about them? There are particularities. This is what we're doing at the moment. So those hundred cases or case studies from the countries across the region, we're now synthesizing them to understand those particularities or similarities or certain patterns that exist across those countries. So this is what we're actually doing at the moment and for the next few months we're going to synthesize this body of knowledge to understand those particularities and maybe certain patterns exist. What we found so far that their civil society is also different in different countries. Uh, Also there are some similarities but they differ from new forms of civil society if I may say particularly in the Gulf Mm -hmm. or in certain countries where there's no traditional civil society actors or organization as we see perhaps in other places. And where actually other countries where there's historically a civil society movement that's active like in North Africa, in Egypt or in Tunisia or in Lebanon. There are some also differences among civil society groups and actors and their dynamics around them. So this is what we're working at the moment. One of the things that I've seen over the last 45 years that I've been working and reporting and writing and analyzing in the Arab world is the attempt, and more than attempt, people going ahead with forming networks, regional networks of civil society activists for democracy, for women's rights, for environmental protection, whatever. And they keep doing this and there's no evidence whether they're able to strengthen their impact through a network or it doesn't make much difference. Have you found any value added to networking across the region amongst like-minded groups? It did work or it's working in specific policy issues or using the policy language like if I can say policy subsystem Mm -hmm. or a policy area where uh, those groups come together. So for example, when it comes to issues around women empowerment or women inheritance or equality like all together, yes, you see some connection between the different groups across the region and they created some or the work or the effective work of uh, some of those networks because it's a single issue they're working through, they're using similar tactics. So they managed in many places to be successful in changing some of the policies around rape victims and the way they've been treated in some countries, including Lebanon, Jordan, Tunisia, and other places. And they used and utilized, or they're interconnected to utilize and use some of the same tactics, same Mm -hmm. language, same strategy. And they were successful in this. So this is a single issue 
they came together mm -hmm. and they were successful. Mm -hmm. In some other networks, it wasn't that successful. Right. And we're looking into some of the factors why those were not so successful. Right. Sometimes when you have such a big range of issues to look at as a network, you're lost in what to take as a priority versus mm -hmm. having a single issue you're working through and you're working to, to get a change or to get actually uh, modified among by the policymakers. What about the impact uh, of international advocacy groups? If you look at like Amnesty or Human Rights Watch or Oxfam, they're active all over the region or even UN agencies like UNICEF, UN Women, they all try to advocate as well. Do you find anything that they do that is more or less effective than what the indigenous civil society groups do? We looked into the relationship between those organizations, and some of them are donor and with civil society. And right. yes, in instances where you had such partnership or relationship or maybe funding relationship between those civil society groups were more active because they need the funding, they need the ideas, they right. need some of the ideas or asks to be diffused also from one place to the other and those organizations help in that. But we also criticized or we looked into critically some of the dependence of some of the uh, indigenous or, or Arab or uh, civil society groups on those structures, whether right. they're international organizations or funding, uh, or funding groups. Mm -hmm. Last question. What's in the future now? What are, what's the biggest lesson you've taken and what will you do with it and how can others in society benefit from it? We're synthesizing the next few months all these data and information. We're looking into those 100 case study as our data set to use the language of statisticians and we're going to do a lot of synthesis and understanding and learning out of them. So this would produce some academic work, uh, contribute to the theories, as I mentioned early on, because the theoretical work on policy making in mm -hmm. the Arab world is very thin, so we're also contributing to the theories and uh, theoretical analysis around policy making in the region. But also we will connect with civil society groups and actors, and those we studied in a way, those who led those case studies are going to connect with the people who are leading the work on the ground and, and really to do some kind of exchange and mutual learning between the scholars and the practitioners. So this is in the plan for the coming year and hopefully those practitioners, those civil society actors, those advocacy groups are going to take some of the findings and reflect on and in the future we aim to produce what we're calling a toolkit from this 100 case studies where civil society actors or someone, an emerging civil society leader, would look and uh, see that this toolkit uh, or such toolkit that's contextualized from the Arab world and from this part of, uh, from well, their Arab countries. You never know, some of these activists and uh, scholars you've been working with might end up becoming ministers or heads of state uh, given the way that the Arab world uh, is uh, moving ahead with immense popular grassroots pressure for change. Uh, and for changes at the top, and uh, I'm sure your work will feed into it. I hope so. Thank you very much, Professor Nasser Yassin of the Faculty of Health Sciences and recently Interim Director of the Hassan Faris Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at AUB. Good luck with your work. Thank you, and we will talk again. Thank you, Rami. Yep. Thank you to our uh, listeners for joining us for this uh, edition of Professors at Work, where AUB professors talk about their research, why it matters, what they're finding, and how it impacts the world. Join us again next week.